You're listening to Amphibicast. Welcome back, everyone. Thanks for joining me again. Tonight, I have a great guest. I have Dr. Alessandro Catanasi, and we're going to be discussing quite a few things, but um, he's got a really impressive resume first. He's going to be, um, well, excuse me, he is an associate professor at um, the uh, Florida International University College of Arts and Science and Education, and uh, he's done some pretty interesting work. He's also, and this is what uh, really interests me the most, is uh, he is an advisor for the IUCN for their um, amphibian assessments. So we're going to touch on that and a whole lot more. But, um, uh, of course, as usual, thanks, everyone, for the nice five-star reviews on Apple Podcast. Uh, I know it's a little bit late, but I want to thank a reviewer from, it uh, would have been about a month ago now, uh, Boa uh, Impuritator. I think it's Impuritator. I haven't pronounced the boa, uh, boa species in a long time, so I hope it did my best. But uh, thanks for the nice five-star review. And, uh, of course, for everything else, for the podcast, if you want to support the show by becoming a patron on Patreon, if you want to get some Amphibicast merch, and if you want a 10% discount off of in-situ ecosystems vivariums, check out the link in the link tree. It'll take you to everything you need to know. And there's also a link there that you can follow to support Panamanian frog conservation as well. So other than that, full steam ahead. Um, Alessandro, how are you doing tonight? Thank you for uh, joining me. Yeah, I'm doing great. Thank you so much for the invitation. Yeah, it's my pleasure. I'm glad that um, I'm glad we got a chance to talk here. Um, so I, I want to dive into it. Why don't you tell us about your background first? Before we get into tonight's discussion, why don't you tell us about yourself? What were some of your earliest experiences with amphibians or the natural world, and what led you to where you are today? Yeah, you know, I mean, I've always been fascinated by amphibians. I think uh, one of the uh, things... Um, I really liked the most at, at the beginning is the fact that um, it's something that you can actually actually, actually have in your hands. Um, and so if you compare that to, you know, many mammals or birds, you always have to kind of watch them at, at, at a distance or you have to get up very early for birds. Um, there's always this factor where there is, the, there is some kind of distance between between you and, and, and basically these, these, these animals. Whereas with, with amphibians, you know, salamanders, frogs, and not so much experience with Sicilians, but it's uh, it's organisms that you can actually experience even from an early age. They're very easy to find. They're very easy to catch for the most part. Um, and they're usually, or they used to be at least, sadly, not not anymore in many places, but they used to be extremely abundant. And so that also gives uh, an appreciation of, uh, of the incredible variety and diversity they can have. Not just uh, diversity of species, but also... Uh, because it's easy to find many individuals of the same species, you can also see that diversity of of coloration and and, and forms uh, just um, of the same species, and that's something that um, you know always fascinated me. And also, they have very interesting, uh, especially life history reproductive modes. I think amphibians are pretty unique, um, perhaps only second to fish, but certainly among tetrapods are the most diverse in terms of um, uh, all the huge. Um, diversity of modes through which they can reproduce. So here's the million-dollar question. Why study South American amphibians as opposed to North American or African or Australian? Why why focus on South American species? Well, I have to say, I mean, personally, um, I've worked uh, with uh, species from uh, three continents, so I'm, I'm not necessarily um, too specific. I just love amphibians, no matter where they live, and each continent has, has uh, its own unique um, set of uh, very interesting uh, species. Now, with South America, something very special about um, uh, more than South America, the new tropics, so the tropic of the Americas, which include basically anywhere from northern South America or 
Central and Northern South America. Central America is just a, this huge variety of, of species. So in terms of number of species, especially frogs, is the uh, areas worldwide where you have the highest concentration. And so I work a lot, for example, in the eastern slopes of the Andes, which uh, not only have this high concentration of species, but also have extremely high level of endemism. And so if you go to the lowlands, you have very uh, high number of species at a single site. And if you go up in elevation along these eastern slopes of, uh, of this mountain range, you don't have as many uh, species per site, but as you change from one valley to the next, you have new sets of species. So they're highly endemic. Each valley has its own high elevation set of species. Um, and so this is mm, something shared among uh, many tropical mountains. So it's not just South America tropical mountains that have these high level of endemism. You find the same in, in African and Asian mountains, but in uh, certainly in Central and South America, it's something that is uh, incredibly enhanced, especially for frogs. It's interesting because, I mean, just, just me off the top of my head, you wouldn't necessarily think of a mountainside being this hot spot for, for biodiversity. But, I mean, from what I understand, like you said, there's a tremendous amount of biodiversity uh, in the Andes. Yeah, I think, I mean, uh, there, there are many of these groups that basically have had these um, uh, large speciation events, these radiations, and, and some of these are relatively recent. And having these barriers and this idea that mountains are higher in the tropics, right? Uh, because uh, just uh, basically going over a mountain pass for a tropical species, the idea uh, being uh, that they are mm, perhaps uh, more specialized to specific thermal environments because they don't experience such high variation seasonally, for example, as temperate species do, um, then that should um, promote the uh, diversification of these groups, um, especially in these cloud forests and in, in, in tropical mountains. That's interesting. I, I have I actually have quite a few questions about that, but um, b- before we get into that, this is one of the things that I was curious about. You are an IUCN Red List authority for amphibians since 2009, and uh, I mean, for the, for the listeners who aren't quite familiar, um, I know that the IUCN Red List is. Uh, Kind of like an entity that I guess basically tracks and assesses the the I guess the danger level of different species. I'm curious if you could tell us. Uh, I mean, in detail, obviously, I just kind of butchered it there. But tell us about the red list. What is it? What is your role in it? And how do you determine which species are listed on it? Yeah, certainly. So the uh, the red list uh, by the UCN. National Union for Conservation Nature is um, is actually a hybrid organization made up of uh, non-governmental and governmental agencies. And the idea of the Red List is to basically provide a document that contains technical scientific expertise that allows um, to identify species that are threatened with extinction. And um, that's that's the primary goal, is that that information should be sent and technically sound, and so relies on, exp- on, on expertise by specialists and um, whenever possible, so by, by some kind of uh, evidence of studies, either because people counted uh, the individuals, and that's done very often with uh, mammals, for example, with large mammals, with elephants, where you can actually count them. Uh, it's not something that's done very often with, with frogs and amphibians in general. Uh, because uh, it's not something practical. Very few people do that. But uh, often with amphibians, we use um, information about their geographic distribution. And so this this list um, 
the the overall aim is to provide these documents so that it um, it contributes to the conservation of, of biodiversity in general uh, for all the groups that are listed in the uh, in the red list. So amphibians became uh, kind of these uh, very uh, important group in terms of uh, in terms of conservation because people worldwide were noticing these declines that were even occurring in uh, in wild protected areas like national parks and some of these species of amphibians were just going missing. And because of that, uh, amphibians were one of the first groups, in addition to the, you know, the, to the uh, your usual suspects, which are birds and mammals, which people always care the most about. <laughs> and so those IUCN long had data about those. But, um, but amphibians are not a group that are, you know, so charismatic or so popular among the, uh, the general, um, you know, the general population. Uh, but because of these observations that started already in, in, in the 80s and 90s, people realizing that amphibians were going missing in places where they shouldn't go missing, in places that are well protected, where uh, the human footprint is, is extremely small. And so why are they going missing? And so people became increasingly concerned. And, and then uh, there was a huge effort in the early 2000s, the Global Amphibious Assessment, and the aim was basically to to go through this exercise of assessing the threat status of every single species of amphibian. And so this first version of Global Amphibian Assessment, which was published in 2006, was one of the, um, basically was the first effort at a global assessment of, of amphibian conservation status. And since then it's been updated. And of course the results have been then incorporated into the ICN Red List. And so specifically or technically the way this is done, uh, usually, um, um, basically, um, there are groups that are set up on the basis of shared expertise. Usually, it's uh, geographically based, either at the country level or by regions. And then there are workshops uh, that are set up so that people can talk to each other. Um, uh, there are over 8,000 species of amphibians right now, and we don't even have 8,000 specialists. So uh, it is very common that actually some species are only known by, by one or two individuals. It's not that uncommon, especially in tropical areas. Uh, for more common species, of course, um, you know, more specialists are actually providing feedback. That feedback um, can, it, uh, under best circumstances, is actually information about population abundance. And some people do have that information, especially from countries in Europe or the United States or Canada. There might be um, study, uh, there might be study sites or species that have really good information or good models of, let's say, population viability analysis, etc. That can really inform these uh, these assessments. But otherwise, for I will say a majority of species, kind of the only information we have is their geographic distribution. And so, for many species of amphibians. Um, the way we apply the criteria that IUCN uh, set up for categorizing species at a specific threat level, which can be critical endangered, endangered, vulnerable, those are the three categories of threatened species, or it can be near threatened uh, or least concerned, which are basically categories on, of non-threatened species for the IUCN. We also have another category called uh, data deficient uh, it's for uh, for species for which we have basically no information or not sufficient information to apply the criteria. We also have a category of extinct in the wild. And of course, we have extinct. 
Um, and so for the great majority of species, uh, the only criteria that we can actually apply are criteria related to the geographic distribution. And so then we can estimate the, uh, what is then called the area of occupancy. We can, uh, we can um, consider the number of localities where species are present. And depending on that number and depending on that range area, uh, then species can be classified into different levels of, of threat. Can you give us a specific example of a species that, that you assessed, maybe kind of walk us through the whole thing from start to finish? Um, well, I, you know, I've, uh, I've, uh, the, the last uh, update was um, probably four or five years ago that I was involved with. So um, probably I will have to refresh myself, my memory, uh, to go over a specific example, but it's not uncommon um, to basically have um, um, to categorize species uh, only on the basis of non-geographic distribution. And for species where there is a single uh, site known and that site is under some level of threat, for example, because of habitat loss or because of mining, um, then, or because of uh, emerging diseases, we have chytrid disease. This disease has been threatening a lot of uh, a lot of amphibians worldwide, and so it's sufficient to basically have a species with a very small distribution range or, or a single locality known, and that locality being threatened by any type of um, anthropogenic activity or invasive species or disease for that species to be categorized under vulnerable or um, uh, endangered or critically endangered. I see. And is there like a regular assessment of, of all the amphibian species or does it kind of go like species by species? Like um, what I mean is like, is there like every like 10 years or five years, like a reassessment of everything or do the assessments kind of just go independently of each other based on whatever is available? Yeah, usually those updates are are done at the level at the regional level. So there might be either reassessments uh, done at, at the level of a continent, or maybe a set of countries that share fairly similar fauna, some even faunas. Now, there's something also interesting, um, which I think is a great um, uh, a great outcome of these red lists. The red list, in, in some ways has been very successful in terms of uh, countries adopting similar frameworks uh, at the national level. And so there are several countries that basically use the same criteria to come up with their own country-level list of threatened species. And so that also facilitates uh, whenever the IUCN needs to update uh, the uh, species status. Um, because uh, there already are uh, specialists in, in, in several countries who are well familiar with the, with those criteria. There are some differences when you apply those criteria at a national level, obviously, because you're considering only the distribution of that species within that country, and there are many species that have distributions that overlap several countries. And so, so there are differences in the ways also that specific countries decide to, to apply some of those criteria. But overall, it's um, I think it's something that over the, the long term will also improve the um, um, the accuracy of those assessments for IUCN because you basically have many people that are highly knowledgeable on how to apply um, these criteria of the uh, IUCN red, red list. 
I see. Is there, um, I mean, I, I, I may have asked this before, but is there like a single governing body that moderates all the different working groups around the world? Or is it just sort of like a kind of like more of a cooperative kind of nebulous uh, effort? So, no, I mean, there are um, different mechanisms for reviewing um, these uh, these assessments. And so um, that's why we also have red list authorities like myself. And so we are charged uh, um, frequently to review assessments. And so we basically make sure that um, the criteria are applied correctly. And that uh, there is, um, the, you know, there's a good strand of certification for the um, category, the threat category that's being proposed. And so again, amphibians are, are kind of um, uh, unique, although hopefully this is going to happen for more and more groups because Aisian is really trying to basically assess the uh, threat status of every single species of amphibian, something that's not been done for other groups. Uh, now, increasingly, there are efforts to do the same for reptiles, for example. Um, and produce as well. I've been kind of being one of the first ones besides birds and mammals where ICN really put a lot of effort into into assessing the basically the global status of all amphibians. Is there a particular so, oh I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, and they, 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 and then there's also IUCN. I mean USN as a as also staff that's um, also responsible for entering the information for management information system and, and they also participate in the uh, quality control if you want to um, say that way and, 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 and verification of, of those assessments and especially also provide help with the, with the mapping uh, of the species distributions that again for amphibians is so important, it's very critical because often the information that will help the most categorize those, those threat status for amphibians is, is just their geographic distribution. I'm curious about some of the categories in particular uh, data deficient. Um, are there any particular groups of amphibians that are consistently data deficient, meaning they just, there is not enough study towards them? And if, if so, which, which, which groups are in need of greater study? No, unfortunately, there actually are, uh, um, too many species under that data deficient, uh, category. And, um, and that's, um, and the only solution to that is to have more, more, more boots on the grounds and more people in the field uh, trying to find these these uh, these animals and trying to study a little bit more their natural history and their distribution. Uh, I, I, you know, there obviously many of uh, the data fishing are recently described species, and we are still seeing, you know, um, over a hundred species, new species of amphibian described every year, especially in tropical countries. And so we still have, we're still in, we're, we're far from reaching um, the asymptote in terms of uh, cumulative number of species of amphibians um, known. And that means that many of those recently discovered species are poorly known. Sometimes they're described from a single um, locality, sometimes even from a single specimen. And especially with the use of molecular data, now it, it becomes uh, even easier to just identify um, many of these cryptic species, and so it also becomes easier for people to go through collections and um, and and find specimens and, and differentiate them, um, perhaps only or mainly on, in terms of genetic um, differences. But overall, the the effect is that you have what people call splitting of species, in um, especially cryptic species. 
and you have even smaller distribution ranges. And sometimes when you have splitting of cryptic species, it's unclear actually what the distribution of the previously, what was previously known under a single name um, is for, for the now two or three cryptic species that have been uh, recognized. Uh, it's also uh, common, it's frequent for uh, many of the recently discussed species to be uh, very small in size. Uh, often, uh, many of these uh, 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 small, especially frogs, are leaf litter uh, species, leaf litter organisms. Uh, again, people don't really like to spend a lot of time looking for these things in the leaf litter. Often, it's uh, pretty um, time-consuming work to kind of sift through and search through leaf litter for these very small frogs. And again, poorly known, right? Because it's they're hard to find. Often, they're very small. So again, we know a little about their distribution, their geographic distribution. We, we know about their natural history. So that's um, some of the reasons why you can have data deficient. In other cases, uh, we have seen that there are many frogs that have not been seen for maybe 20, 30 years. And so people just don't have, don't have information. And when you don't have information, it's hard to even say whether something is extinct. You just don't have information. You can't really prove something to be extinct. And so um, the idea of the uh, red list is that um, when you're assessing a species test status, you're basically looking at the past, either at the past 10 years or the past three generations. So for, for amphibians, it's about 10 years, um, taking as average a three, two to three year uh, generation time and generation uh, period. And so, uh, you know, if, if something has not been seen for the past 10 years, what, what do you make of it? You know, we know that's been last seen maybe in the 70s or 80s. Uh, it's not been seen in the past 10 years. Um, what do you make of it? It's, it's going to be a data deficient species. So some people argue that many of those data deficient uh, could actually mask basically many threatened species. I think it's a little bit of a mixed bag. Uh, but certainly some of those uh, data deficient species might actually be uh, highly threatened or may even be you know, possibly extinct. How do you make the determination that a species is extinct? Because, I mean, that was going to be my next question. Uh, obviously, data deficient, I mean, for, it's it's interesting because what you say, I mean, really, a, a data deficient species could, I guess, be very well extinct, but... How do you make the distinction that a species is extinct or, or extinct in the wild? What, what criteria do you need for that? Yeah, I mean, uh, at least I, I think it's very reticent at, um, at um, considering a, a species extinct, uh, exactly because it's basically impossible to prove that something has gone extinct. Um, and so I think it's a combination of uh, previous distribution that, that was extremely well known. Um, and uh, the species not, not having been seen in, 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 in many years. And so, well, obviously when you think about uh, most species that have gone extinct, um, most of them are example where we know for sure that uh, things that have gone extinct are, are, are um, organisms that live on islands, right? Because, well, we know that the distribution uh, is very, it's highly restricted to that island. But we also do have, and that's not very common with amphibians, in general, because um, amphibians are not really uh, that common on islands, but um, but we do also have examples of things such as passenger pigeons that used to occur in the billions, 
across North America, and we're not sure that passenger pigeons are extinct today. Um, so, but it is definitely challenging for um, things that have secretive lifestyles, such as amphibians, and that can be extremely small, and for which the uh, geographic distribution is not always perfectly known, uh, whether they're really extinct or not. What about rebounding populations? And I'm, I'm just going to preface this real quick. A lot of the conversations that I've had with scientists and researchers is that the overall situation is kind of bleak. I mean, it's we're, we're not on a very good trajectory for amphibians as a whole, but there are species that have rebounded and have or been rediscovered or doing fairly better than what we thought. Some of your research has, has been into that area. Can, can you tell us a little bit about that, like some specific examples of species or populations that have rebounded and how that happened? Yeah, so uh, what I've uh, been working a lot in cloud forest in, uh, in the Andes is on the effect of this fungal disease, uh, chytrid. And we know chytrid has been very destructive to, to amphibians. And we have two species now, one that attacks salamanders and now one attacks frogs. Um, and um, as part of that, uh, I've uh, basically witnessed, in some cases, even mass caused by this chytrid. But more generally, I've just seen the um, the very dramatic effect that basically has caused the collapse of entire assemblages of, especially montane cloud forest uh, communities of frogs. And so, and it's in that context where I see sometimes. Um, some species that have gone missing for maybe 10 or 20 years, making a, uh, making a comeback. So in my experience, what I've seen is that actually the species are more likely, most likely to, uh, to rebound, are species that have uh, populations in the lowlands. And so there are species that don't have a strictly montane distribution, and they might perhaps be relying on basically um, dispersal from lowland habitats and uh, re you know reinvasion of montane habitats and so you basically have a source in the lowlands and what you've seen right now in terms of rebounding populations are kind of just sink populations of individuals are coming i don't really have uh, any evidence for that at the moment but that you know just a general observation that most of these rebounding um, populations uh, basically never went completely missing from the area. They still had population in the lowlands. Whereas uh, for basically um, almost all the species um, that only had a montane distribution, they're, they're still missing at, at places where I've been following or I've been monitoring amphibians for over 20 years now. Uh, that said, there also are a couple examples of species that are basically almost exclusively montane in distribution, and they're also being rebound. And at least one of those cases, for example, a toad, uh, what's very interesting is that the tadpoles, for example, don't get infected with this fungal disease, and even the adults uh, have very low uh, levels of infection, very low prevalence. So it's, I'm, I'm not sure it's allowing them to um, keep infection levels so low, but it's interesting to see that um, there are, you know, there might be possible explanations of what allows different species to rebound at different sites. Is there any correlation between, I guess, uh, I mean, 
I'm trying to think of this in, in I guess, in, in genetic terms, but um, is it almost like there's been like a genetic bottleneck that might favor certain adaptations that are, you know, consistent with the environment, disease, et cetera, now, as opposed to the way it was a few decades ago? Yeah, there is this idea, um, I mean, some people, some people have investigated that, or whether uh, you basically have some type of a selection event um, caused by uh, by this disease. And so there are many things that are uh, kind of strange and uh, enigmatic about this uh, disease. And one of it is that uh, we still don't really have any evidence that we produce sexually, and so the genetic diversity of at least a strain that have people call the global pandemic lineage, which is basically the strain that you find in every continent, has extremely low genetic diversity. And usually things are basically clones. You won't expect them necessarily to be that successful and especially not so successful in infecting such a wide variety of uh, species. Uh, because basically, most frog species can be infected, and although not all species are equally vulnerable to infection, many of those um, can can easily develop the disease, cryptomycosis, and uh, many of those are actually relatively highly virulent and lethal uh, disease. So it's um, it's yeah, it, it's it's very it's it's very enigmatic in some ways of uh, how you can have these uh, different outcomes. Um, I don't know that necessarily, again, you have a single explanation. And so what my work in some populations, and perhaps there has been some, uh, some type of selection operating, and there's also this idea that um, in some cases, there could be some priming effect, like almost like you could uh, develop vaccines to protect fraud and so that's something that you also think that if uh, the disease is present but it's not present at epidemic levels and uh, some uh, part of the population gets exposed they could develop some type of immunity um, i think it probably varies a lot by species um, and also i think that at least initially when you had these very um, um, destructive waves epidemic waves of chytromycosis, but uh, especially in parts of South America, they started in the 80s and 90s and early 2000s. I think uh, you're right in using that term of genetic bottleneck. I think that those first waves were so destructive that I doubt there was any time for uh, most populations to evolve some kind of uh, resistance. Um, it was just uh, such a destructive and, as you call it, genetic bottleneck. So it was just basically a catastrophic event where you had um, a sudden uh, shrinkage of the population to densities that became so low uh, to cause, in many cases, uh, local occupation of, 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 of populations. So another aspect to that is, is that um, so this disease is a fungal disease that attacks the skin in amphibians. Uh, skin is such an important organ in amphibians. Um, a lot of amphibians do most of the breeding through the skin. Uh, also, obviously, very important in terms of water balance, which is so important for amphibians. Also, in terms of defense, and you know, think about dendrobatids, right? What they have in their skin, what they pack in the skin in terms of alkaloids, etc. 
And so a lot of, uh, many of the lines of defenses that amphibians have against any type of skin infection uh, is actually made up by either those chemical defenses that can be al alkaloids like the nervatis. Uh, also many species have peptides, the peptides, often uh, those, the peptides is what gives them a um, very distinctive uh, smell. And uh, many of those peptides have antimicrobial properties, including antifungal properties. And so that's something that, um, you know, if species are just lucky enough to have peptides or perhaps even alkaloids that could be really good at um, reducing the growth of fungus, of a specific chytrid fungus, then that alone can give them protection. Uh, in addition to that, uh, you also have these uh, bacterial uh, these bacterial communities that live basically symbiotically with the, um, on the skin of pigments, and that's also another uh, line of defense. Uh, and people have been able to to prove that basically some of those bacteria will produce metabolites extremely good, also limiting the growth or killing this fungus, and of course other potential pathogens as well. And uh, um, people have even been able to supplement. Um, like a probiotic treatment, right? Uh, where you basically inoculate frogs, their skin, with bacteria that produce really good antifungal metabolites. And that gives them, at least in the lab, gives them good protection against uh, chytromycosis. Of course, these are things that will be extremely difficult to apply in the wild, but at least as a proof of concept, is is um, basically a, it's a very interesting idea, but it's also um, uh, demonstration that a lot of what makes amphibians um, potentially resistant to, to infection um, could be explained just by the bacteria that happen to live on their skin. And how they end up living on their skin might actually just be um, basically a, 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 the, the result of ch a chance encounters with those specific bacteria in the environments where, the, where they live. It's interesting you mentioned probiotics because I've, I've in my own research and, and kind of traveling down different rabbit holes, I, I came across some research about just just like you said about how different bacteria, different microorganisms colonize the backs of, of different species of amphibian. And I, I've you tell me what you, what you think about this, but I, I've read a few things to suggest that uh, things like global warming or differences in the intensity of sunlight might be causing these factors to break down and make these frogs more susceptible to chytrid and other types of infections. I've also heard that this is more of a case in, in cloud forests. I mean, is there any truth to any of that in, in, in your experience? Well, I think, um, uh, I, th I think it's pretty clear um, that amphibians are threatened by, uh, by a variety of, of factors, right? And climate change certainly is something that's going to affect uh, the reproduction is going to affect their physiology. It is already affecting um, their 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 abundance, their distribution, etc. Um, but I, I think uh, you know we have uh, examples also from from human pathogens. We have the example with COVID. Obviously, uh, we know that there are emerging pathogens, and we know that that they have an incredibly high potential for 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 causing problems. Um, and um, the, it should not be underestimated. Um, and also, with increasing travel, with increasing trade, 
the fact we get agricultural product um, from all over the world um, and just people traveling so much, just people carrying a lot of these microorganisms uh, on their boots, on their clothes, uh, etc. Just the fact that people travel so much and goods travel so much, that just um, it, it's easy to predict, to anticipate that these spread of emergent diseases are only going to increase in frequency. And, and so it, um, not, not, I, I don't think it should be surprising that you have uh, a pathogen such as chytrid causing so many problems. Uh, we have the same for humans. And of course, a lot of the uh, emphasis has been on COVID over the past two years, but we have been living with an HIV pandemic for now uh, decades. And that is another example of basically the wildlife pathogens in the case of um, HIV and COVID making these spillover events into human population from, from wild animals. And, uh, but, you know, some very similar processes are also occurring for, for wildlife. And um, that's something that uh, should not surprise us, I think. Yeah, I'm always curious about the way that um, things, things spread. Um, I mean, whether it's influenza whether it's it's plague or i mean covid um you know in the past smallpox cholera polio all, all these different things that that infectious diseases that affected human beings i'm always curious about like would chytrid be happening now independent of human beings and you know were there were there previous uh amphibian pandemics before human beings were even on the scene you know it's just it's just one of those things that i kind of kind of like to speculate about yeah i think that it's all kind of a um, if you want chance events that determine whether these things will happen i think the uh, the key difference is they're just happening um with more frequency and uh, we, we can just anticipate that they will um basically occur more frequently and uh, so will they occur without humans it's entirely possible i mean birds move around as well <laughs> and so they have these abilities to also carry around these microorganisms, but uh, I think with our um, just uh, with our increased travel and again with trade, we're, we've just amplified that potential. Before we 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 started off the uh, our uh, before we started off this interview, um, we were talking a little bit about Andean species, and um, that was another thing I wanted to cover tonight was like uh, some of your research in, in the Andes mountainsides. What were some of the species that you were studying, and like how was disease affecting them specifically within that biome? Was it any different from any other environment? Yeah, I think uh, we've, uh, we've seen some similarities, um, and specifically, again, here, what is most likely cause for many species going missing is, is uh, fungal disease. And we know that this uh, disease relies on aquatic pores for its dispersal. And uh, what I've seen in the places where I work uh, is similar to what people have seen in places in Central America, for example, and elsewhere, where often species that are um, first affected are species that reproduce aquatically. Um, and so I, I was, um, you know, I mean, mentioned to the high variety of reproductive mode in amphibians and um, in places such as the Andes, actually, a majority of species reproduce terrestrially. They have these reproductive direct development uh, modes where they just lay um, eggs and mosses and uh, you don't have tadpoles and the little froglets hatch. 
out of the egg. And so those species, species are less exposed, that we believe are less exposed to, to, to those aquatic spores. And so they're less likely to encounter uh, chytrid. They're still susceptible to the disease if they do end up getting infected, but they usually avoid water. And so they probably don't really come into contact with the spores very often. Uh, and so at the sites where I work, uh, the species that first uh, went disappearing, or even that I've seen where I've seen mass die-offs, are, are typically species with um, with aquatic reproduction, and specifically those that reproduce in creeks. What's the um... I mean, this is, I mean, I'm never going to get to the Andes. I'm always curious what the what the natural environment is like, what the biome is like for for the frogs. What's the environment like there? You said it's pretty consistent, right? Yeah. So, uh, I mean, it, it, the Andes are very very uh, um, diverse, right? So you have all type of uh, ecosystems, but the cloud forests um, tend to concentrate, especially on the eastern slopes of the Andes, uh, the Amazonian slopes of the Andes, uh, where you have basically this, um, this line where you have kind of permanent cloud condensation um, and you have these forests are throughout the day covered by in fog. And, and then you have this uh, very uh, rich flora of epiphytic plants, so a lot of ferns, a lot of orchids, a lot of mosses growing on, on, on trees, et cetera. And so that's just kind of visually how it, how it looks like. Um, and um, many, uh, we have very um, abundant actually populations of both leaf litter frogs that live in those mosses. Uh, we have, uh, of course, we used to have these frogs that, uh, that live in creeks as well. Uh, among them, uh, there, are, there were many halids, so tree frogs. There were some, um, some dendrobatids as well, aromobatids as well. Um, and uh, glass frogs also is another group that. Um, typically uh, quite common in, in those type of environments. And that was another question I had was uh, the, I guess the group kind of collectively known as, as glass frogs. I know there's quite a few different genera. What kind of habitats did they, and like niches did they occupy in the wild? If, you, if you've ever ran into them, like what would, if you went looking for them, where would you find them? Yeah, yes, they're uh, always on creeks. Um, usually, uh, these are green, mostly green frogs, right? Um, and they're always on leaves, so it's green and green. So they're really, really challenging to see, really hard to see. Um, but usually, typically, you kind of only see the males because you hear them, and so you can locate where they are. And um, typically, the males are calling from uh, leaves, either under the underside of leaf or above the leaf on top of a creek. And so they're usually defending a site where they could uh, then attract a female mate, lay the eggs. And the eggs have to basically be right above the creek because when they, uh, the, 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 the eggs are actually laid, uh, they're attached to the leaf that is above the creek. And so when, when the tadpoles hatch out of the eggs, they must be able to fall into the creek. Uh, and often also they're uh, quite high in the canopy. Uh, so for many species, uh, you might hear the male, but uh, unless you're willing to climb, but even if you're willing to climb the trees, they're still on a far branch, right? Because again, it's a leaf that has to be basically right above the water. And, uh, often, uh, those leaves are right above the water in places where um, uh, there is either a small waterfall or or a strong run, basically where the water current is, is, pretty, is pretty high. It's pretty fast. Are these like mountain creeks that are like really, really cold? They come from like 
ice melting up top or like what what feeds these creeks yeah so i mean yes they're usually uh, they can be very steep very steep creeks um with uh basically you know boulders or even rocky substrate um some of these places are not the safest to uh to reach um they don't you know they might get up to um 3000 3200 meters or so they don't really get up that close to glaciers um they're uh, usually found in, in in forest areas and so that's typically tends to be below 3500 meters is this is this constant i mean is there are there seasonal variations in these areas between like um like the I'm, I'm trying to think of like uh i guess like like floods i mean sometimes you have certain parts of the world where there's really dramatic weather events and it floods i mean is this is this all kind of consistent like where, where you'd find glass frogs or it, it varies yeah no that's definitely something that could affect their demography their population abundances and um some it's just anecdotal observation that i have but it's you know thinking about climate change again um, something that I've seen, uh, at least in my 20 year, you know, over 20 years working at some specific sites in the end is, is that I do think there is an increase also in, in um, the frequency of um, basically um, landslides or uh, concentrated rainfall events where you have very, very high intense rainfall, basically um, not, you know, discharging huge amount of uh, rainfall over short periods. I think that's something that definitely has a lot of potential to negative affect those those populations because you know if you have current floods and you have tadpoles living in those creeks, obviously that's not going to be good for them. And a lot of uh, species that are producing creeks are extremely sensitive um, to these uh, scoring floods or even landslides, obviously, where you just have mud covering everything. Now, glass rocks do are pretty good <laughs> at living in uh, very um, fast locations, and and that's because what they do when they when they fall and they hatch and they fall down from the leaf into the creek, they actually basically bury themselves in, in into the gravel, and so you don't see them swimming in the creeks because they're actually underneath uh, the bottom of the creek. They're in the gravel. That's interesting. I'm, I'm the fir- the first thing that comes to my mind is, I mean, people are going to know I'm a trout fisherman when I say this, but I'm thinking of um, like mayflies, stoneflies, caddisflies. Who they kind of just hang around the bottom and don't really move around too much unless they're going to emerge. That's that's an interesting behavior. So they just kind of just hang out in the gravel and don't move. Yes. Yep. Yep. So there's different species that do different things. Uh, There are some other frogs that have, uh, the tadpoles have suckers, for example. They they just, you know, they just basically adhere to the rocks, like the tail frogs in in California and and Washington, for example. Um, And and so you have different types of um, adaptations to be able to live in these fast flowing streams. But but glass frogs, that's that's what they do. They kind of stay, you know, they kind of basically decide to not to deal with the current. I see. Yeah, I should mention the two the two uh, genera. Um, off the, these are the ones that I pulled off your website. I'm I'm gonna try and pronounce these because I never I never use binomial names in like casual conversations. So I <laughs> I always try my best. But um, it's uh, Centralina and Nymphargus. Those are the two the two genera that that you've seen in the wild. Uh, yeah, no, there's uh, there are more than those, but yes, those are two. Um, there's also a Halenobatrachium, which are the ones that are entirely transparent ventrally. Uh, there's uh, Rulirana, for example. So yeah, there's there are 
total generals of these uh, of these class frogs. Now, um, at some of the sites where I work, um, uh, Nymphorgus is a group where I've seen um, several extra patients and so species that following the arrival of these Scytrophungus have, uh, have disappeared. They've not been able to, to see in over 20 years now. That's interesting. Are there any other pathogens besides chytrid that are affecting the populations of frogs in the Andes? Well, that's a very interesting question. There's a lot of focus on chytrid right now because um, there's all this body research and because we have a good method to be able to detect with, with PCR assays, for example, similar to COVID. <laughs> and so that really uh, has helped people collect these, um, these uh, large amount of information on chytrid distribution and uh, related to observe the clients. But yeah, we know there are, there are other diseases. One of them is rhinovirus, for example. We know rhinovirus is actually quite important in temperate areas, for example, uh, in, the, in the United States, in Europe, and it can cause massive die-off events, especially in the spring. And uh, we actually did uh, some work looking at the uh, presence of rhinovirus, uh, specifically in the Andes, in Peru. And we did find that um, that many species uh, also have rhinovirus, and and some of those are co-infected. Basically, they're infected with both the chytrophungus and rhinovirus. Now, what we don't really have so far is clear evidence that uh, there are outbreaks of rhinovirus, uh, for example, in the Andes, that are, that are actually causing um, problems in terms of. You know, populations of amphibians or, or, you know, this basically extirpation of species that you have seen with chytrid. So uh, I will say, yes, we know there are other diseases, but we don't really know exactly what impact it is on, on amphibians. Is there anything, uh, I'm trying to think of the best way to phrase this, is there anything that you would do or, or other researchers in general to look for new or, or unknown pathogens that might also be compounding this? Because, I mean, I know you mentioned that uh, ranavirus and, and chytrid can occur simultaneously and then certain frog species can handle it, some can't. Is there anyone out there looking for other possible diseases that might not necessarily be known or, or well-known? Uh, that's an interesting question. I'm not sure. I I'm I I think the problem. I mean, there are older diseases as well that people are investigating. One of them is Burkinsia, for example. Um, and actually, people here uh, in Florida specifically looking at, at that other pathogen. And there is some evidence that also might cause um, some population declines in 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 some cases. Um, but in terms of uh, you know, discovery of just brand new pathogens, um, to be honest, I'm not 100% sure. What people are, are doing um, now is in terms of, uh, for example, researching the, uh, the uh, bacterial composition of the skin of amphibians is using these uh, next-generation sequencing techniques that basically allow you to come up with lists of uh, different types of bacteria, strains, or species. Uh, it's often, um, you can't really call them species because you're just basically getting information on one of their genes, and then you have to come up with these arbitrary ways of um, defining what um, people actually call them a taxonomic units often to avoid having to decide whether they're really species or not. But 
Uh, as part of these exercises, people are basically collecting information on diversity of uh, bacteria that occur on the skin of amphibians, uh, diversity of fungi that occur on the skin of amphibians. Um, somebody might even be looking at uh, viruses as well occurring in the diversity uh, on the skin of amphibians. And these can also be done uh, with, for example, fecal samples and so looking at uh, what's in the digestive tract of, uh, of amphibians. And so that um, I'm sure eventually will provide us with some information about the presence of uh, additional uh, pathogens. Now, the issue is always that um, you have this false dichotomy in my mind between, and I think you mentioned that idea previously, of having a dichotomy between, well, this is an emerging disease, is something completely new that uh, these amphibians are naive to, and that's why they're all dying. Um, which is what many people uh, thought of uh, happened with chytrid. And uh, the other view, which is more of an ecological view of saying, well, these amphibians are, are stressed out because of all these environmental uh, factors, threats, and that makes them more susceptible to uh, disease such as chytrid, but could have been any other disease. So then it becomes kind of difficult, right? When you have um, when you have some type of mass die-offs, for example, or when you have some type of uh, metarist population uh, going missing or or species declining, it, it it always becomes difficult to really understand uh, how much of that that organism being uh, stressed by an environment and making it susceptible to an opportunistic pathogen versus having something that's just completely novel and for which these organisms have no defenses. Um, that, um, again, often what really limits our ability to understand what's going on is the fact that we don't really have good field data, good observation from what's happening in terms of this uh, population was doing fine until this year, and then it's suddenly we had this crash. Uh, and those are data that are not that commonly um, collected for, for amphibians. It's one of those things that I just, I think about in, in well, really not in passing because I kind of, I kind of do think about it fairly regularly. But w when I think about the whole situation with, with chytrid and ranavirus, I mean, those are the, the two diseases that I guess get the lion's share of attention. I, I, I always ask myself, well, human beings are susceptible to hundreds, if not thousands of different diseases. As, and so are many, many other organisms. I mean, obviously, Amphibian species are, are unique from species to species. We really, I shouldn't really lump them all together, but I always ask myself, like, what other factors are at work here? Because it, it's just, I, I always want to know what the, I mean, a, a house is made up of many, many bricks. You know what I mean? Like, and what bricks are have been put together to make this situation um, as severe as it is? Yeah, I think, uh, I think um, it. it uh, it's hard to know in many cases what's uh, what exactly is going on, uh, especially with these populations in the wild. I mean, it's it's hard enough. It's it's hard enough to determine when you have them in a lab, and so imagine it the wild with just very limited information. Um, even 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 with trade, where people have been collecting a lot of information on, on their infection status. It's actually it's it's actually complicated by all these other changes that are occurring at the same time in the environment, and some of those changes are just uh, pervasive. I mean, you have cl climate change, for example, that, um, and it's not just that you have this gradual increase in, in temperatures in many places. You also have this increased frequency in in, in 
in these extreme climatic events, for example. And so all those are things that are kind of very difficult to take into account and to model and uh, to be able to forecast what's even going to happen in the future, for example. Um, I, I do want to add that at least one tool that is actually becoming very, very useful. And we have, again, we have seen that very well with COVID, where basically the genetic data have given us real-time data on the spread and uh, has, you know, they basically helped us understand that it, the way it works is just once it's out, you have these multiple introductions, right? And so you can you can see that um, basically COVID has been making the rounds around the world many, many times over. And so you have these strains that uh, spread very quickly and it, there's not a single introduction into continent. Usually there are multiple introductions because again, people travel so much. And so you have multiple introductions of new strains continuously and genetic data are really good at tracking that. And uh, with Kitrid, we also have seen that. And again, with um, with uh, the strain that is this global pandemic lineage, we've been able to to see that really uh, there's extremely low genetic diversity across most continents, which again is suggestive of a very recent spread of this pathogen that basically is so recent that they didn't really give time um, to the to this fungus to diversify, and and also again uh, really supports this idea that. Uh, Perhaps not directly, not consciously, but as as humans, we have facilitated the spread of this um, of, of this pathogen. And so, I think, well, these these genetic genomic data are going to become very very useful in trying to understand um, how these how these pathogens are spreading and whether they really are emerging pathogens. Some of them, some many of them are, and uh, what are more just. Um, Pathogens are, uh, you know, that have been around for a long time, and they're just opportunistic. And when when animals become extremely extremely stressed, physiological stress, they become prone to to um, infections. It's it's interesting how the genetic diversity. It's I mean, maybe it's just because I'm thinking of it from the wrong way. But with viruses, for example, mutation is is pretty pretty consistent. Um, I never would have thought that there would have been such a low genetic diversity in um, in Ketrid. Yeah, at least in that strain that, uh, again, people call the global pandemic lineage, yeah, there is an extremely <coughs> low genetic diversity. Um, now, there are other strains um, that uh, people have called, for example, uh, BD Brazil or BD Asia, etc. And there is uh, quite a bit more genetic diversity in those cases. And uh, where you actually have the ancestral strains, the basal strains are um, tend to be from Asia. And actually, the one that are, um, that's most basal is uh, from the uh, Korean, Korean Peninsula. And so that's the idea: is that actually the the origin of of this chytrid is possibly in um, in the Korean Peninsula. Well, we're kind of winding down towards the end, but I, I want to ask you a question that I, I always ask researchers and scientists, and I kind of ask, what what does the future hold? And I, I know that it's often it's often pretty bleak. It's often a pretty negative picture that gets painted, but are there any positive takeaways from, from your work or, or just, you know, the greater research in general? Is there anything that looks like it's promising for the horizon in terms of preserving wild frog populations yeah no i agree we have to focus on the uh, on the good things um i think uh 
one great outcome that we've seen, for example, with all these efforts on trying to understand Kitrid, is just uh, seeing people come together, uh, trying to understand a very complex problem, and it's people from very different disciplines and with very different interests. But the overall purpose is to try to conserve amphibian diversity. Uh, we have also, in the process, learned a lot about a lot more about amphibian biology, a lot more about the uh, amphibian skin and how it works and how it defends itself. We'll learn, you know, we'll learn a lot more about peptides and about these, um, for example, bacteria that live in the skin of amphibians. Uh, we also have a lot more people interested in amphibians, and in terms, in terms of human capital, in terms of uh, how many people now care about amphibians, we definitely have had a, um, a huge improvement from uh, that sense. And at the end of the day, the um, our, our, our ability to to protect amphibian diversity is really going to depend on how many people care about them. And so it's really a work of education, of getting people to care about them, getting people to know them. I think people are not going to care if they don't know how fascinating organisms they are and also how useful they could be. And there's also a lot of potential for drug development in many of those compounds that they have in their skin, for example. And so, yes, I think there are positive elements. Um, they also overall the the direction I think uh, globally is for people to care, to care about biodiversity. To people uh, realize that um, many species are highly threatened that we may lose them, and um, this should help over the long term. Hopefully, to continue creating new protected areas, which uh, is still a very uh, very good tool to protect, especially amphibian biodiversity. And now, you know, in, in contrast to, uh, for example, large carnivores that require very large areas or very large national parks, which can be tricky to set up because uh, there are so many competing interests, economic interests, political interests, etc. For amphibians, often because many amphibians have such small distribution ranges, you don't need to create large areas. You don't need to create large national parks. You don't need to spend 20 years um, trying to achieve those goals. Uh, you can actually get uh, local communities excited about creating small reserves, perhaps at the uh, you know even municipal or local level. But uh, if you have enough of a um, um, capillary network of those protected areas, you can actually make a huge difference in terms of conservation. Yeah, one of the things that I set out as, as you know one of the goals of the the, the podcast is to. I like to constantly explore these issues and, and I'll, I'll, let me just frame this the way I, I came off to me, but I hear people talk about amphibian extinction, amphibian decline, amphibian pandemic, et cetera. And it, it always play, it paints this very, very bleak picture, which in, in truth it, it is. And my biggest question was, well, if it's that bad, why would any, you know, if it's a lost cause, why would anyone care? Why would anyone want to bail out? A sinking ship. So my little mission has been to try and find every little piece of success that we've had, every new understanding, every bit of new data, every researcher who has been working on it, because I feel like there has to be more there than just a complete downward spiral. I mean, we have to be going from, have to be going somewhere. And you raise so many interesting points, especially about 
the you know the bac- bacterial colonization on frog skin and global warming and the, the co-occurrences of other diseases i mean these are all things that are really really interesting and I, I know that it's still very very bleak but it gives me hope because at least people are out there looking at you know what i mean you can't fix a problem until you assess it and at this point at least we're very very deep into that assessment phase i mean to me at least that justifies having some sense of hope now that's just that's just my my take on it yeah and i know i have to say i mean maybe it's wishful thinking but i i'm still hopeful that more species will, will rebound eventually and uh especially thinking about how um, diverse a place like the andes are and so you have this concentration of very different microclimates over relatively short distances and this huge uh, environmental gradient and additional gradients and so my hope uh, that there are pockets out there where perhaps some of these you know pathogens has not been able to arrive and some populations have been able to survive and persist and so it's just a matter of time before we at least we discover some of them and uh, there's always that hope and so we shall not lose hope that some of that some of those more of these populations might be bonding. Also, I, you know, with amphibians, there is, again, still a lot of discovery to be made, even just discovering new species, which I think is something pretty exciting. Uh, and, I'm, and I'm involved quite a bit with that because uh, the Andes is one of those hotspots where we, we have a lot of species discovery occurring. And part of it is just related to this very high level of endemism that you find in tropical mountains, especially at high elevation. Well, that's something that um, personally I find very exciting. And I also uh, think that in general, the public finds quite exciting because uh, of, uh, of the papers I publish or the scientific paper I publish, usually the ones that are easier um, to uh, disseminate for the public through, through the media are, are new species discovered. And so there's always interest when, when we put out some kind of a press release with some uh, with some species discovery, so obviously there's also an interest, I think, um, in 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 that part of uh, of amphibian biology. I always look forward to those stories when they pop up in my news feed because my my Google feed obviously is very very frog heavy, and um, I do see fairly fairly consistently, maybe one every couple of months, there's some new species that's been discovered and or described and reported. Uh, I mean, this may be a silly question, but as we're losing species, are we discovering species at the same rate? Yeah, that's uh, that's just an apparent product, right? Uh, I, I mean, the, the, the species we might be losing might actually be biologically real, whereas uh, what we're discovering is just a function of our ignorance. <laughs> and so we're just catching up <laughs> slowly. I mean, not that slowly, actually, uh, lately, but um, it, it's basically one is a biological process of perhaps extinction or least extirpation in many places. And the other one, it just has to do with our ability to to discover and name those species. And so not just discovery, because um, there are many more species that have already been discovered, or at least the, the, the person, the herpetologist who's, who saw them knows they're, they're new, but then there's a whole process of actually naming it that takes it takes quite a bit of time, depending on how unique they are, distinctive, how easy it is to differentiate them from other already named species. That's one one part, and other part is the taxonomy, 
of uh, specific groups. Sometimes the taxonomy is a little bit complicated. It's intricated. Um, there's a history of us, how people are previously called these things or similar things that might influence how how it is how it is easy it is for you to actually uh, describe and name it. Um, and I'm saying that because uh, in some groups, for example, um, the uh, the original species in that group were maybe described in the uh, you know 1800s. And uh, the the types, which are the regional specimens that were used for description, might be in, uh, in the British Museum in London, for example, which already requires you to go there, um, which is non-trivial um, because of the expenses uh, related to that. Also, if you have to take uh, your own specimens for comparison, you need permits, um, which are not straightforward to get or might require additional time, etc. And also, often specimens that have been preserved for hundreds of years, they're not in, in the best condition. Often descriptions from the 19th century are not that good, etc. So there are many factors that actually might affect how quickly you can, you can describe new species. If they're very unique, very distinctive, um, all, all the other species in that group have genetic data and you have genetic data and you can clearly distinguish them on the basis of morphology, genetics, uh, bioacoustics, so their advertisement calls, etc. Then that's, those are things that tend to come out very quickly, maybe a couple of years after they're actually discovered uh, in the field, in the wild. But for many others, uh, those things are a lot more complicated and they might not be described for another 10 or 20 years. That's fascinating, though. I've I've always had kind of a fascination with species that have gone extinct or, or have gone extinct in the wild. I mean, I, when I, it's going to sound silly, but like if I could have anything in the world, I'd love to go back in time about 500 years and just tra- travel the globe and see all these species that have gone extinct. But um, I mean, is, is there any particular species that you have a particular affinity for, like a specific concern that you'd be like really, really devastated if it got lost. Oh, uh, I mean, there are so many uh, species on Finland. I think one one that we think is already lost that, that I thought was absolutely fascinating is this gastric breeding uh, species from Australia, right? Robotrachus uh, salus, for example, and uh, these are species with unique reproductive modes where uh, people used to basically eat the eggs, and you will have the um, the embryo development occurring inside the gut of the female, and basically the the mother will eat until the um, the uh, frogless hatch and basically walked out of uh, her mouth. And so these are species that we believe has gone extinct uh, that people have not seen since uh, I believe the mid '80s. And so they, these are the things are such a tremendous loss because uh, there is so much we, we could have um, uh, we could have uh, studied about them. You know. I, how does a female shut down her digestive system for the duration of uh, this crazy reproductive mode, right? And so there are many things related specifically to reproductive mode. I come back to this theme because it's just fa- so fascinating. Amphibians, uh, one work we did, for example, a few years ago with marsupial frogs. Uh, in the Andes, we have this uh, group of, uh, of uh, uh, gastrotica, I mean, fractive frogs, uh, that, where the females have the dorsal pouches. And those dorsal pouches um, can have different uh, levels of uh, closure, if you want. And so there are some species where basically the pouch is entirely sealed, and the female 
uh, is helped by the male after uh, mating and, and fertilization of the eggs. The egg is inserted in, inside its pouch, and then the, the pouch is sealed. And uh, the entire embryo development um, occurs inside this pouch. And so then again, you have um, the uh, froglets hatching out of those of those eggs and basically emerging out of the uh, pouches. Now there is also a variety here because some gastrotheca actually lay tadpoles, and so just incomplete development of the embryos into just uh, tadpoles that then the female lay into um, basically little pond. But we work with one of these species that have a direct development where basically you don't have any tadpole And there was this idea that a researcher that actually dedicated her life and career to these marsupial frogs, uh, Eugenia Lupino, she's uh, a researcher in Ecuador. She already actually tried to investigate uh, in, the, um, in the 80s or 90s, she tried to investigate whether the, uh, these females, these brooding females, were actually providing any nutrient to these developing areas. And she wasn't, she wasn't able to actually prove it. She also she only observed that basically the embryos didn't change uh, their mass, which is already suggested that probably they're actually receiving some kind of supplementation, some kind of food supplementation from the mother, because otherwise you would expect that as they develop and they burn up all their you know, vitaline reserves that are obtaining the egg, the mass should decrease, right? Because a lot of it is actually burned and released as CO2. And so you would expect that actually the mass of these embryos should decrease. Uh, we used a little bit of a more refined technique where we basically fed the female um, enriched, isotopically enriched food. And so we added these um, uh, very heavy isotopes so that we could trace whether the embryos were picking up those heavy isotopes. Uh, into their tissues. And we were able to prove that effectively the female is providing these uh, food subsidies, the supplementation to the embryos. And that's quite unique because actually it's basically as if the skin, because the dorsal pouch is basically modified skin, was, uh, was basically acting like a placenta, which is quite remarkable. Uh, and so these nutrients are crossing this 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 skin membranes and making its way through the embryos in these soft pouches, which is which is very fascinating. And so we have a variety again of these reproduct these unique reproductive mode amphibians, and I think they had a wide variety of uh, very interesting mechanisms through which amphibians make it work, so that their reproduction is is successful. That's amazing. And people ask me, like, how, why are you interested in frogs? And that's <laughs> that's a perfect example why. That's uh, I, I'm always fascinated by that stuff, especially the, the reproductive strategies. There's so much more than just tadpoles and eggs. There's just so many different, uh, so many different adaptations. Well, Alessandro, we're, we're at the end, but um, I wanted to give you a chance. If anyone wanted to find out more about your research or, um, or anything that, that, that you're involved in, like the IUCN, where would you direct them to go to look for it? Yes, I do have a lab, a research lab at Florida International University. So we have a website, katanaskilab.org. Uh, and so that's a good place to um, basically know more about the research we do, the research I and my students do. Um, we generally um, work um, mostly on conservation-related issues, often with amphibians, also with reptiles. But the main idea is that uh, we tr everything we, we do, we try to 
uh, do it for a reason that will eventually contribute to body conservation. So that's kind of more of a mission for what we do is I must have some kind of contribution for biodiversity conservation. So some of my students are investigating, for example, uh, whether, and again, we go back to reproductive mode, but whether, for example, for the familio, um, the, uh, the females are able to detect the scent of the spores and be able to decide whether uh, to avoid places where spores are present uh, to, um, to lay their um, tackles. Uh, their eggs. And so that's what kind of research. Um, also, another student uh, is looking into more urban ecology uh, with Cuban tree frogs, which are invasive species here in, in South Florida, but also provide opportunities to look into the effects of different types of human stress stressors because they occupy both very urban environments, even in downtown Miami, you can hear them calling these Cuban tree frogs. But they also are widely uh, distributed even in agricultural area where they might be exposed to um, fertilizer, pesticides effects, and also in, uh, in Everglades, for example, where you have more natural environments. And so um, just interested in looking at how these uh, human tree frogs respond to some of those, uh, some of those stressors. I also have another student working right now on the project um, following what happens in the wild. Um, to infected uh, frogs. Um, uh, I mentioned the fact that many of the direct developing frogs in the Andes, for example, they're not as exposed to chytrid. And that's one reason we think that many of those are still persisting. Um, but we also want to know, we also know from experiments where we actually experimentally challenge them with chytrid and we see that some of those are highly susceptible. And so they basically, chytrid is lethal to them. Uh, experience that will probably never repeat again. It's just something that was very unpleasant to do. But uh, with that information, we're now basically following in the wild, uh, capturing, recapturing every two months, individually marked frogs to see um, what happens to them when they get infected. And so some, uh, some preliminary results I can share with you um, without stats, but uh, even without stats already, uh, I think very meaningful, is that we have already seen cases where uh, we have individuals that uh, were infected, uh, maybe the first time they were captured, the second time they were captured, and they've been able to clear, and naturally they've been able to clear infection. Again, actually, I'm hopeful that these, these mechanisms, whatever they are, uh, they're increasing frequencies and providing some species with protection. And so we already know that for some of these species, uh, individuals are able to clear infection in the wild naturally without without um, need of, you know, our, 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 any kind of action from our, our part. And so this project is still ongoing, but we're, we're hoping to collect a lot of data to really understand what the uh, demographic consequences of infections are in these direct Well, that's, inc that's encouraging. I, we'll, we'll have to do this again sometime if you have some new data. I, I'd love to discuss that because that's, um, that's, that's very encouraging, actually. Yes, I hope uh, more. Uh, I hope not only to get more of these uh, very encouraging data, but also to maybe um, you know find some more of uh, the rebounding species. And so I, I never lose hope. Um, there's already been a few that have made a somewhat uh, timid comeback, but I'm hoping that more uh, will also follow similar trajectories. And uh, we know from other countries where. Uh, Kitrid has basically hit uh, much earlier, 
such as Australia, for example, or even South America, like uh, um, um, Ecuador in Central America and Costa Rica, where those waves of pitrid, initial waves, occur uh, earlier than uh, places in the Andes where I work in Peru, for example. And uh, there, there are even more cases of species that, that people know are uh, their populations are found. And so my hope is that that's something that's going to uh, also occur at the uh, mycelium sites eventually. Well, it's my hope too. All right, everyone. I want to thank Alessandra for taking the time to talk to us tonight. This was this was really really interesting stuff, and there was some encouraging stuff in there along the way. So, I mean, as I always say, look, this is this is an ongoing thing, and um, you know, the more people look, and the more we're going to find things, and occasionally we find things that are encouraging. So that's a good good way to good way to end a conversation. I know we always end up on some some grim stuff, but in any event, I uh, hope you guys are enjoying the new season. Um, you know, we've got ep- new episodes coming every week. Um, other than that, you know, <laughs> usual stuff. I've got some good stuff on the horizon, so be sure to check it out when it comes out. Other than that, catch up with you guys again soon. <laughs>